good to see you all. Um, and welcome to Melbourne City Adventist Church if it's your first time. And if those of you watching online, it's good to have you join us as well. I know some people are sick, um, some people are traveling for the long weekend um, and are tuning in. So hello to you all and hope to see you next week. Are men and women equally called and qualified by God to serve in any capacity within the home, the church, and the world? This is a topic that's been brewing in my heart for 20 years. 20 years ago, uh, almost exactly to the day, I preached my first sermon. And I remember that first time feeling so nervous. I had never done it before. I had never seen a woman preach before. And uh, my youth pastor at the time had asked me to preach. He said, Jinha, I think, I think you can preach. And so I was very nervous, but he made me do it. And so that was my very first sermon um, when I was 20 years old. And ever since then, you know, I, at that time, I had no idea that I was going to become a pastor. And, you know, it's been 20 years since, um, since that time. And, of course, now I do it all the time, preaching, that is. And this is the very first time that I'm actually preaching on this topic. First time in 20 years. I'm grateful for Roy and the other male colleagues who have preached, written, or taught on this topic so that I didn't have to. But after 20 years... I am not ready to speak, not to defend myself and my role, but to help all of us to better understand the Bible, to explore, to think, to pray and study and wrestle with texts so that we become faithful students of the, wor of the Word of God, so that we can understand God's character better and then answer his call for each one of us so that we can represent him better to the world as well. And if you're wondering, well, why now? Why after 20 years? Well, two reasons. One, um, you might remember that about a month ago, I attended the Empower Conference, which is um, a conference for all the Seventh-day Adventist pastors in, in Australia that happens every five years. And so we all got together, except for Roy, who's stayed home to hold down the fort, which I appreciate. And so while we were there, we had this amazing, inspiring time. But it was also very challenging. You know, we were having meetings from 9 a.m. to 9.30 p.m., and when the meetings ended, we would all get together and we'd chat about the talks, and we would, you know, connect and get to know each other. And um, some of the, um, some of us, um, we were staying in the dorm, the girls' dorm, and we would go into the lounge, and we would talk until 2, 3 in the morning. <laughs> and um, we connected, oh, sorry, totally. Oh, I'm fine. Um, we, we connected and we talked and we were sharing experiences. And while their stories were inspiring, it also broke my heart. Because we all shared common experiences and stories of being discriminated against, of having faced um, sexism, of having faced uh, bullying and abuse experiences that resonated with each other and so as we were sharing we were we were praying and we were singing and we were thinking how do we make it better for the next generation because it was wonderful to see and this is I'm turning 40 this year and I'm having an existential crisis and um and so I I'm having a rough time accepting like I feel like I'm not young anymore but I don't feel wise enough to be old, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm in that, like, oh, my goodness. Like, I still feel like I'm 25, but I'm not 25. Because when I was at the Empower Conference, there were people who were 25. And I looked at them and I thought, 
and they're young. <laughs> and they wanted nothing to do with me. And, you know, they, they, they were like, you know, in their own little group. And we older um, women in ministry, I remember we were chatting. We were like, they have no idea. They have no idea. And, and they, they don't know what we've been through. They're not grateful. You know, and I was like, wow, I sound really old, right? <laughs> um, and we were we were we were we were sitting there just pouring our hearts out and 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 crying and, and and talking about how do we make it better for the next generation? How do we make it better so that those women who who don't know what we've been through never have to go through that? And so that's been in my heart for the past month. How do we dispel common beliefs? And this is one of the things that we were talking about: is that there are a lot of people who mean well. There are a lot of people who who have good intentions, but they keep doing things and saying things that make it difficult. Um, for women. And so it's been in my heart. And the, the second reason I want to talk about it today is because Wednesday was International Women's Day. And this year's theme is Embrace Equity, a topic that challenges us not only to think about men and women as equal, as having equal worth, but to consider whether men and women have equal opportunity and support. Because despite much progress and change in our societies and cultures and churches, men and women do not have the same opportunities and support. For example, a few weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention was in headlines around the world. I don't know if you saw this, but they were in the news because on February 21, they voted to expel five churches from their membership, including one of their most prominent and largest churches, Saddleback Church, which um, you might know of because Pastor Rick Warren founded it in 1980. And he wrote a very famous book called The Purpose Driven Life, which in the 2000s was very popular, and a lot of people, and I've read it as well. In 2021, you know, he, so he had been there for like 41 years, and then um, he ordained three women as pastors at Saddleback Church, and he retired in 2022. I don't know if I know about the timing, but so he retired, but the, the Baptist, uh, when he retired, Pastor Andy Wood became the lead pastor to, um, in his place. And Pastor Andy Wood's wife, Pastor Stacy Wood, was also installed as a teaching pastor at Saddleback. And the Southern Baptist Convention decided to expel Saddleback and four other churches who also had women pastors, asserting their policy that while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of the pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Now, this is the Southern Baptist, you know, church's policy. Our, our, the Seventh-day Adventist church policy is different. The Seventh-day Adventist church's policy allows the commissioning of women to pastoral ministry. It allows the ordination of women as church elders and the ordination of women as church deaconesses. However, despite the fact that the Seventh-day Adventist church supports women in ministry, commissions women in ministry, um, and supports the ordination of women, because of a common theology and thinking as the Southern Baptist Church that has permeated not, this, not only the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but many denominations around the world, there are many Christians today who do not support women in ministry, who do not support women elders, and do not permit a woman to teach or preach at church. And also, of course, um, there's the understanding in the home of the hierarchy as well and in society in general. And this is, and, and, the, and, the, and like the Southern Baptist Convention, 
the claim is that they are being faithful to scripture. And I want to examine that claim today. I want to look at some of the Bible passages that they claim, and I want us to explore it together. Today's part one, we're going to be looking mainly in the Old Testament, and then next week we're going to be looking mainly in the New Testament. And I want us to uh, begin by first a word of prayer. So if you could just bow your heads with me as, as I pray. Father God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to see with your eyes, to discern with your spirit, and to act with your love. And I pray for clarity of thought and communication now that I'll be presenting um, fair uh, views of, of, of your word and that, Father God, all of us would be able to, to study together, to, that our hearts would burn within us as we discover truths that you have for us now. And we pray for humility, we pray for wisdom, we pray for discernment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, the claim that is often made is that by, that by creating the man first and by creating the woman from the man, that God designed man to be the leader and for the woman to be the subordinate, um, whether that's in the home, in the church, in society. You might have heard variations of this claim before. So let's go to Genesis. Let's go to that very first book, and we're going to be looking at um, several verses. And we're going to be doing, and I apologize, but we are going to get pretty technical. We're going to be looking at Hebrew words. We're going to be doing some theology. So bear with me as we go through this. It's very important. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this is the first time we hear about humanity being created. This is God setting the groundwork of the kind of humanity he wants to have. And so he talks about how he, he places not just the woman or not just the man, but he places both man and woman on earth as co-rulers of the earth, and he gives them the same mission, which is to rule over creation. Now, the Hebrew word for rule here is radah, which is talking about harnessing creation's potential. It's about cultivating. It's about bringing out the best. It's about creating beauty and order out of what is there. And so Adam and Eve, um, you know, the humanity, male and female, are being tasked with this mission. Also, notice how it says that mankind is being created in God's image. And so God's image is not just in man or not just in woman. It's in men and women together. They reflect God's image. Okay. And so, so far, so good, right? We, we see that God has blessed this, um, he blessed humanity and commissioned them. And they're working together. They're ruling together. They're reflecting God's image together as equal partners. Now, if God wanted to place one over the other, this is, would have been a great place for him to say that because he has given them authority over the birds, the fish, and all the other living creatures. This would have been a great place to, for God to say, and by the way, I'm placing one over the other in authority. But he does not do that. 
Nowhere in Genesis 1, when God creates, does he say that one gender is placed in authority over the other. So that's Genesis, that's um, a bit about humanity in Genesis 1. So then what about Genesis 2? Okay, so then Genesis 2, we have a more detailed account of how humanity was created. So let's get to Genesis 2. We start in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And I'm just going to jump ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from the tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. All right, let's pause there. Now, many over the years and centuries have read this translation of the word helper and have thought because of social uh, and, and uh, I guess, language connotations that helper is someone who is inferior, right? Like you've got the main person and then you've got the helper, like this, the assistant in a way. So this is how John Calvin, a French reformer, Trans, uh, understood this. And so he lived in the 1500s and he was a very influential leader of a huge section of the Protestant Reformation. And so this is important for us to realize that 1500s, okay, the, the theology is being formed around this um, idea. And John Calvin said, okay, woman is the helper made, uh, helper suitable for him. So this must mean, and, and quote, uh, he says that woman is a lesser helpmeet for man, an appendage to serve his beings, okay? So this is 1500s theology of John Calvin that has influenced a huge part of Protestant Reformation. However, if we, look, if we go back to what the Hebrew word is actually saying that is translated as helper today, the Hebrew word is ezer. And that word, when we, whenever we look at the Bible text, we have to look at how is that Bible word, how was it used? in other parts of the same book, by the same author, in that time. Okay? So those are some of the things you have to consider. So th let's have a look. And when you look at the book, uh, th this word is used quite a bit in the Old Testament. And a lot of times it's used to describe not a subordinate, but actually someone else. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 4, this is Moses, the same person who wrote Genesis, who's writing and using this word. And he says, the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper, Ezer. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so this word, Ezer, of helper, is used a lot in the Old Testament to describe God. And we would never say that that means God, being our helper, means he's subordinate, or that he's an assistant to, or that he's lesser than. And so we really have to check our connotation of what a helper really means. In the context of chapter 2, the idea, the phrase, the helper suitable for him, the word translated as suitable literally means in front of, face-to-face, -face, counterpart. And so when Genesis says that there was no helper suitable for him, it's saying there was no one who could the, the problem is not good for man to be alone. And the solution is that there's a helper who is his counterpart, his partner. Now let's look at how, it was how she was created. This is, this is another uh, a very important point that is often made. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 onwards. It says, But for, no, for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, in the original Hebrew, it actually doesn't say rib. Um, it's translated rib because that's what translators are guessing that it could be. But originally, um, the Hebrew word is literally side. So it says, um, God took one of the sides, then he created the woman. Um, so, so the claim is, well, since the woman was created from the man, doesn't that mean that she is subordinate to him? That's, that's how the logic sometimes goes. Now, Dr. Richard Davidson, who's an Old Testament professor at Andrews University, he said this, derivation does not imply subordination. Adam was derived from the ground, but that certainly, certainly we are not to conclude that the ground was his superior. Again, woman is not Adam's rib. The raw material, not woman, was taken out of man, just as the raw material of man was taken out of the ground. As the man was asleep while God created woman, man had no active part in the creation of woman that might allow him to claim to be her superior or her head. So I thought that was a really clear way of showing Hey, derivation does not equal subordination. So yes, Adam and Eve are created differently. But does anywhere in Genesis 1 or 2 say that this difference in creation meant that one was above the other? In instead, I see Genesis 1 and 2 telling us over and over again that men and women, men and women are created to be counterparts, partners, right? eye to eye, front to front, one humanity doing God's work together. And yes, Adam was created first. But, once again, let's check the logic. The fish and the birds and the animals were created before Adam. And so being first does not provide hierarchy. In actual fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that God regularly places younger sons in leadership over the older sons. Jacob, Joseph, David, Moses, etc., also, the English translation of the Hebrew word Adam needs to be considered. So bear with me. This gets a bit technical. So the Hebrew word Adam actually has multiple meanings. It can mean a human being or mankind, and not necessarily a man, and not necessarily the proper name of the first man. So for example, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the literal translation of the verse is, so God created and it says, and, and the Hebrew way of pronouncing it is Adam, not Adam. So God created Adam in his image. But notice how in the English it gets properly translated as mankind, because that is the correct translation in this context. So God created Adam, mankind, in his image. In the image of God, he created, created he him. Male and female created he them. Okay, so keep that thought in your mind. We get to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. And it says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created Adam, mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And he named them Adam, mankind, when they were created. Okay, so with me so far, God creates Adam. He puts Adam to sleep. Takes one of the sides out of Adam. Creates a woman. Then, when the man wakes up, 
he declares, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. This is the first time in the Bible we see that word woman, Isha, for she was taken out of man, Ish. And this is the first time in the Bible we see that word. And that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and his united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And to make things even more confusing, um, Isha and Ish, with, you know, the man and woman, can also be translated husband and wife. And so do you see why the Hebrew text can be interpreted in different ways? Because the words have multiple meanings. And so different people are going to come up with different understandings of the text. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 5, you see that the word Adam is talking about mankind, humanity, and that it, it describes that humanity as being male and female. And then in Genesis 2, we have that detail of the first man and the first woman having that one flesh relationship of the two becoming whole, of the two becoming Adam. Okay, so it's full circle. So what about Genesis 3? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to, there's so much more I could say, but I've got a lot of covers. I'm going to move on from that. Let's get to Genesis 3. When we get to Genesis 3, this is where it gets really hairy. This is where people say, all right, it's fine. We acknowledge that maybe men and women were created equal in the beginning. But what about the fall? Okay. And when we get to the fall, the claim is Eve sinned first. So women are now subjected to men. So the, so the claim is, all right, fine. Men and women might have been created equal in creation. But because of the fall, they are now subjected to men. All right, so we're going to look at this. In the story, um, Adam and Eve don't trust God. And it is true. The serpent tempts Eve. Uh, Eve um, does not resist the temptation. She eats the forbidden fruit. She takes it to her husband. He also does not resist. He eats the fruit. And then they both, the consequences of sin start, start falling out, uh, including feeling ashamed. Um, they hide from God. God comes to them. He asks what happened. They blame each other. They blame God. They blame the serpent. Okay? And then God comes to the judgment. So this is the part we're going to be looking at. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Then to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you eat from it, food from it, for all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to focus just on that one verse in Genesis 3.16, the one that's addressed the woman, because this is the part that's taken to say, therefore, because of this judgment from God, where it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, claim is now women are subjected to men. Okay, so I'm going to be focusing on this. What did God mean when he said this to women? What did, they, what did God mean? Now, we've already seen that you can um, translate the word husband as man and the word wife as woman. So there's already a bit of ambiguity there. Is this 
husbands and wives or is it all men and all women? Are all women subject to all men now? But that part gets um, uh, eliminated by process of elimination when you look at the Old Testament as well as New Testament times. Did God have any women in authority over men? And the answer is yes. You've got Deborah, you've got Huldah, you've got, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have time to go into it. So that, that idea of this being applicable to all women and all men, that's eliminated. So then the question becomes, okay, and that's why a lot of uh, translations will say husband and not man there. Okay, so then the question becomes, all right, so then has God now placed wives subjected to their husbands? All right, so let's look at this. Dedicated scholars who study Genesis, the syntax, the grammar, the word study, they've come to different explanations. So let's just make that clear. These are all people who have studied the word, are faithful to the word, and they've come to different conclusions. Here's the three plausible interpretations of this text that are faithful to this text. First, that this is a predictive description of the consequence of sin. What do I mean by that? That because of sinfulness, husbands will usurp authority over their wives, often causing much pain and harm, but this hierarchy is to be removed by the gospel with return to equality between husbands and wives. In other words, when God said, hey, your desire will be for your husband and your husband will rule over you, that God is saying, because of sin, just like because of sin, now the ground is cursed, because of sin, you're going to die. Because of sin, this is what's going to happen. And so this is not God saying, this is what I want for you, but this is God describing the consequences of sin. So this is one way of interpreting this passage. The other way that this uh, text gets interpreted is that it's a permanent prescription of divine will. That God wants the wife to submit to her husband's leadership. God wants the husband to exercise headship. So this is what, um, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention believes. Here's the third. The third interpretation is a redemptive prescription that says, as the wife voluntarily submits to her husband, and as the husband follows Jesus' example of servant leadership, God's ultimate plan of equality between husbands and wives is restored. Okay. So this is God saying, here are the consequences of sin. But as you submit, equality will be restored. Okay. Now, there are many more variations. Okay? There are over 12. But these are the three kind of main ones um, that I wanted to bring before you today as the main categories of interpretation that's possible, that's true to the text that you will, that you will face. So which one of these is right? Dr. Athela Brenner, professor of the Hebrew Bible at the University of Amsterdam, says this. Any interpretation of this utterance as a curse, as an ideological statement of fact, as a blessing or otherwise, is largely dependent on the reader's gender position and may vary considerably. In other words, how you interpret this passage is going to depend on your presuppositions, on your upbringing, on your culture and we have to acknowledge our bias. For example, here's a riddle that you might have heard before, so don't say the answer out loud and ruin it for everybody else. The riddle goes like this. A father and a son are in a horrible car crash that kills the dad. According, uh, sorry, that's not this. The son is rushed to the hospital. Just as he's about to go under the knife, the surgeon says, I can't operate this boy, that boy's my son. How is this possible? Have a minute. Think about this. Think about this scenario. The father has been killed. 
The son is about to have surgery, and the surgeon says, I can't operate. He's my son. So the answer is that the surgeon is a woman. She's the mother. They've done research with this riddle, and they have found that the majority of people don't come to that conclusion because the majority of us have that bias that the surgeon must be a man. And I just bring this up as an example to help us understand that we have unconscious bias. We're not overtly trying to be, but we all have it, and it's important to acknowledge it. Over the years, I have changed my position about Genesis 3.16 multiple times. I used to believe in interpretation 2 most of my life. And then at one point, interpretation 3. And then interpretation 1. And after my study recently, which um, I'll share kind of where I am in a minute, but at the moment, I'm in a, I'm in a combination uh, between one and three that I'll present in a minute. But my point is, each time, no matter which stance I took, it was because I wanted to be faithful to God. And it was because I wanted to be faithful to Scripture. And I hope you can all acknowledge everyone else's desire to do the same. That we not attack each other as unbiblical or unsound, but can talk about the passage and talk about this topic with respect and treat each other as genuine followers of God, all trying to do the right thing. And so I just wanted to put that out there. That no matter what you believe, and you can disagree with me, um, and who knows in five, ten years' time will I'll be, but the important thing is that we're studying together, we're praying together, we're thinking, and we're talking about this. So let me explain where my position is today. And like I said, you're welcome to disagree with me. And this is my position um, based on my recent study. And let me show you some of the reasons why I believe this. One of the so, so I'm kind of in between one and three in the in the sense that I see God describing, okay, predicting the chaos that's going to come and the pain that's going to come as a result of sin. But I also see God providing redemption, and I'll get to that in a minute. I want to share a quote um, by Dr. Jan, Leon and Leanne Sigvarstin, who are also professors um, and, and works at Andrews University. And he was actually my favorite professor at Andrews. And I didn't realize that he had actually written on this topic until this week when I was researching it. And he says this, and I just want to read this before I go on. He says, in light of the discussion about the two forms of sexism, what he does is he, he, he looks at the seven different kinds. He, you know, he goes beyond the three I've shared here. And um, what he does is he says, well, you know what, how do we know which one's right? And he says, well, instead of looking at, we, none of us can say which one is right, because right, none of us is God. But he's, he, what he does is he looks at the empirical data of what the subordinate place of women, what that view has done in society, in the church, and culture. So he looks at the empirical data, including Lindy Chamberlain and how he sees um, the view of women having impacted how she was treated here in Australia. So it's a very fascinating um, paper, which I'll share at the end. I'll link to if you want to look. But anyways, he says, in light of the discussion about the two forms of sexism, hostile and benevolent, it becomes clear that male headship and an associated hierarchical view, voluntary or involuntary, although on the surface it may seem good, can often have some serious consequences both within a marriage and within a faith group or larger society. Thus, instead of viewing God's statements and he will rule over you as a God-given ideal and a blessing in a post-fallen world, endorsing and perpetuating a relationship that seems, seems to be caused by sin and is a direct result of sin, it may be better to view this statement as predictive, revealing that male headship and women's subordinate submission 
is an additional new reality caused by sin. He goes on to say, um, The creative narrative provides the answer to why the world is the way it is. Sin causes death. Sin causes shame of being naked. Sin causes disharmonious relationships between humans and God and in human relationships. Sin causes pain in childbearing. Sin causes tension between good and evil. Sin causes hardship in survival. Sin causes thorns and thistles to grow. As such, the pre-fall egalitarian relationship between the sexes should be considered the creation ideal, which a faith community should strive towards and replicate in their marital relationships. It can effectively close the door to sinful adverse behaviors like the abuse and exploitation of women. Again, something one would expect a faith community to condemn. And I really like how he's looking at the empirical data of what happens when you believe one or the other. And I don't have to tell you, you know what happens sometimes when um, women are believed to be subjected and subordinate to and inferior to. We have all seen what that might look like. The international, New International Commentary in the Old Testament examines the Hebrew word for rule in Genesis 3.16, which, by the way, is not the same word for when Adam and Eve are commissioned to rule over creation. It's a different word. And he looks at that word, which here uh, in Genesis 3.16 is mashal. And he, uh, the, the commentary notes uh, a very interesting parallel, which others have noted as well. And another professor... Uh, Professor Dr. Jacques Ducan has put it together in a way that you can visually see. Okay, so take a moment. So the first bit you see is in Hebrew, and I get that you might not be able to read Hebrew, and that's okay, because he has kindly transliterated it for us. So if you look at the, the transliteration, you can see that Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7 are almost the same, that a lot of the words are repeated. And I'll just leave that up there so you can have a look at that. Now, why is this important? Well, Genesis 4-7 is when Cain, um, the son of Adam and Eve, murders. He's actually upset at his brother, younger brother Abel. And uh, actually before he murders, God comes to Cain and he says, Hey, if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. And God says, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So that almost exact phrase is used in Genesis 3.16. And so in the, in the commentary, it looks at the parallel between the two. And so it interprets Genesis 3.16 as predicting the consequence of sin, that the wife is desiring to control the husband, the husband is trying to dominate the wife, each party trying to rule each other. And so it sees Genesis 3.16 as the predictive description of the battle of the sexes. In other words, God is saying to women, hey, there's a result of sin. You're going to try to control your husband. Your husband's going to try to control you. And this is, this is a, a consequence of sin that, that is sad like the thorns and thistles of the ground. Now, Dr. Jacques Ducan takes it even further. He sees the parallel between Genesis 4-7 and Genesis 3-15 and 16. So not only looking at Genesis 3.16, but looking at what God tells the serpent. This is what it looks like if you put 3.15 and 16 together. And think about what you just heard about Genesis 4.7. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Do you see the parallel struggle here? Like the struggle between Cain and his temptation, there is a real conflict here between the serpent and Eve, between the tempter and the tempted, and between the offspring of Eve. In other words, and we saw this happen. The serpent uh, tempted Eve. Eve should have resisted, but Eve lost that battle. That temptation gets shared to Adam. A Adam should have resisted, but he lost that battle. And then their children and their children and their children and all of us, we lose that battle. Every day we're caught up in this conflict between choosing God and choosing our own way. Trusting God versus wanting things in our own control. And that plays out in our interpersonal relationships and it plays out in our own internal hearts. So where is the hope then? And the hope is that phrase, he will crush your head. And, and Pastor uh, Dr. Jacques Ducan sees redemptive hope in that phrase in Genesis 3.16. He will rule over you as a promise, as an echo of that promise of Jesus, the descendant of woman. From that painful birth is, to, is going to come a son whose name is Jesus, who declares this mission in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the ear of the Lord. That in the judgment, there was already hope of redemption. There was already a promise of someone who comes along and restores things as they were supposed to be. And I know that I said I'm looking at Old Testament, but I have to end with Jesus. And so I just want to reiterate this idea that Jesus comes as a human being, as an offspring of woman, right? From, from the descendants of the offspring that Genesis talked about. Here he comes to redeem humanity from all the consequences of the fall, right? From all of it. There is the good news that there's freedom for the oppressed, the opening of the eyes of those who are blind. And he undoes the curse. He undoes the judgment so that instead of death, we can have resurrection. So that instead of conflict, we can have peace. So that instead of pain, we can experience healing. And how does Jesus do this? By doing the opposite of sin. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and distrust his ways and do things their own way. But Jesus comes and submits. He surrenders. He serves. He sacrifices. Seeing the bickering amongst the disciples about who was first or better, Jesus said to them in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. He voluntarily submitted himself to humanity. He washed his disciples' feet as a servant, and he died for humanity. 
So yes, while I see Genesis 3.16 as God predicting and describing the sad consequence of sin and, and the sad conflict between husbands and wives and the conflict between all of humanity for power and control, I also see Genesis 3.16 as foreshadowing the way to reconciliation, that God's path for equality and harmony, whether it's between husbands and wives, between men and women, between all humankind, comes through Jesus' example of voluntary submission. I see in the garden where Eve is given the bad news that women will have sorrow and childbirth and power struggles, the counter good news in Luke chapter 1, where the angel is telling her, you have found favor. What a change in circumstances. You have found favor. And he says, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. That painful childbearing, you know, judgment that, that is, you know, awful, as someone who has experienced it twice, um, the angel comes to Mary and says, hey, you're having that, you're going to have that painful childbirth, but you're going to have the Son of God. And in verse 33, look at this, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. He will rule over you. He will crush the serpent's head. How? The power of the Most High overshadows Mary. And notice what she says. I am the Lord's servant. May the word to me be fulfilled. You see, Mary does what Eve failed to do, which is to trust God's word, which is to voluntarily surrender and submit to him. And her fiancé Joseph does what Adam failed to do. Joseph could have said, my fiancé is pregnant, I, can, I want to expose her and disgrace her. But instead, he thinks to divorce her quietly. But God comes to him through an angel in a dream and says, No, Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. I want you to marry her. And he submits to that. Knowing full well that not everyone in community is going to, you know, think well of him. There's going to be gossip. There's going to be scandal. There's going to be criticism. But Joseph submits to God's call for them and this couple partner together to raise the Son of God so that God can be glorified, so that His image can be reflected. I've run out of time, so I will skip the other things I wanted to talk about, but let me leave you with a challenge. I'll skip, skip, skip. <laughs> let me leave you with a challenge. That's, by the way, some of the references that I mentioned today. The challenge is to prayerfully consider what motivates us. Whether it's in the debate about gender roles or in how we treat each other, what motivates us? Is it pain? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it anger or bitterness? Theology or tradition, or culture, or upbringing. Whatever it is, I've been there. I've been motivated by all those things. And they're not necessarily bad motivators. But I pray that we may be motivated by Jesus. His example, his teachings, his word, his love, his humility, his wisdom. So that when we talk about gender, when we interact with each other, when we do anything that's controversial or that we have different opinions about, that we can do it all knowing that we bear God's image, that you bear it and that I bear it.
and that together we bear it so that the world can see that God is good. Please join us as we sing our closing song. Father God, thank you for being the Lord, for being the authority, for reigning over us. Help us to surrender and submit to you in all the areas of our lives and hearts where we're holding back, where we want control, and to learn that it's through that way of surrender and submission that we actually get to reflect your image better. And Father, help us to lift up those who have been downtrodden before. Help us to empower those who have not been heard before and help us to be able to create a better and more just society and church and family so that all your children who have the image of God can be recognized and affirmed and equipped to be able to serve you so that the world can see just how incredibly loving and kind you are. And so, Father, help us to be able to see with open eyes and help us to participate in emancipation of those um, who have suffered for too long. Um, and as we go into our discussion now, um, give us wisdom and clarity, we pray in your son's name. Amen.